Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. If you were my age, you would have heard of Idi Amin. If you're younger, you may know about trekking into the nature reserve to see the silverback gorillas. Look, I'm talking about Uganda, but none of this is in Sarah Miles' book, The Wolf Hour. Welcome back, Sarah. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for having me. Well, tell us about your Uganda, 2008. My Uganda, 2008. So my story is sort of set in the north, really. Um, 2008, we're 20 years into a 30-year civil war. And my main character, Tessa, has gone there to do research um, on war-affected children. Now, she goes with um, a lot of ambition. She's um, an academic, but quite naive in many ways. Um, And what she learns really changes her um, incredibly. And... You know, she she. It's from her eyes that we begin to see the picture of the story. So, Uganda, the South is actually more under control. It's it's run by the um, president Museveni. Museveni, yes. In the north, it's the Lord's resistant army. Yes, Joseph Crony. Well, he's seen as a god. This is a quote from the book. His followers say he is invested with the power of the Holy Spirit, that bullets do not harm his soldiers. He was a farmer, a former altar boy, who has become a bloodthirsty zealot. This is what um, uh, Tess's mother, Lee, reads about him on the internet. And that's all sort of part of it too. There is the myth-making. But at that that time... um, Coney is very strong uh, in in his influence among the people and it's a period where children have been abducted in large numbers and made insurgents and they've come to fight. Well, we're going to read... I'd like you to read a bit about uh, uh, Tessa, whom you've introduced, talking to one of these child soldiers and there were 20,000 of them child yes. soldiers and this is Francis. This is Francis, who's only 13... I have been purified, he said, and he smiled, stretching the ugly wound on his face. I have been marked with she-nut oil by Coney, so I am his soldier. Before an attack, we are sprinkled with holy water, and sometimes the colonel will make a cut mark on our skin, then put brown powder underneath to keep us strong. Each time I pray, I pray for the spirit. And is that how you kill with the spirit? Tessa asked. Yes, I have the spirit. I kill, he replied, and then added with a gust of enthusiasm, death comes to those who do not obey the law of the Ten Commandments. It was a complete contradiction, and yet he believed it. Tessa stared at his hands, at the dirt under his nails. He was a murderer. You have to make sure the skull is cracked. But what if one of those commandments is, thou shalt not kill, she whispered. He frowned. You do not understand. We are told to follow instructions and no harm will come to us. We are doing God's work. He began to knead the flesh on his forearm, pinching the skin and twisting it in tight bunches. Tessa reached across and rested the weight of her hand on his, something her mother might have done. He stopped and quickly pulled away from her. 
She had urged him to tell her his story, and it was shocking, beyond belief, she thought, beyond understanding. Her face burnt, and a surge of anguish tore at her chest. She felt a tremendous responsibility, which she was ill-equipped to handle. He had lived with different rules, and there was little place for the kind of mild psychology she espoused. The knowledge behind his eyes terrified her. Absolutely. <laughs> she's um, she got a job at, uh, at the, a rehabilitation centre. And I'm just amazed, too, about the number of children that have come through this. I assume it's based on some type it of... It is. It's based on um, a lot of research, actually. Um, part of uh, when I was, was exploring the book, I wanted to follow Tess's journey. She's written a PhD, but she's, she's wanting to sort of extend her knowledge. Um, and so I kind of explored what kind of PhD she would write and then um, read many testimonials and spoke to people who had been involved with war-affected children. And so there were were story upon story that I kept hearing. And Francis is just one among them. The the way that religion has been distorted. Like Francis said, the Ten Commandments, well, if you're afraid, you die. If you do not kill, you die. You kill, you take Yes. And, oh, golly. So, Tess is there. She's working in the rehabilitation centre, but she also has an older brother. Now, Tess is uh, 30, older brother Stephen, also working in South Africa, you know, 4,000 4, kilometres away in Cape Town. That's right. So what's he doing there? Well, Stephen, um, like many siblings, is uh, a, a completely different person to Tessa. And he's there, he's involved um, with, a, with a friend of his who he met as an exchange student. And they have what he calls a sporting equipment shop. But that sporting equipment also extends to firearms and so forth. And Stephen is a pretty gung-ho sort of person. Uh, in fact, uh, I have a, a good friend who's Ugandan. And when I was talking about the book with her, she at one point said... Aha, I know Stephen. He's a Kenyan cowboy. A Kenyan cowboy who um, his mother reads in at some advertising that he's he does advertise to take people out to shoot the big five, mm. not with a camera. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so Stephen looks at his younger sister um, and, and sort of thinks of her that she's a, wow, an, um, a, a medieval saint, always trying to do the right thing. But this is another little quote from the book. Okay, so this is Stephen talking to Tessa. Look, Tess, I'm sorry if life doesn't meet your expectations. Maybe you think your idea of humanity can work, but let's face it, you're wrong. People who want to change the world... Burn out from disappointment. Humanity is nothing more than a biological label for the animal species we belong to. That was rather clever. Humanity in the animal species. Well written there, Sarah Miles. (laughs) So this is where the action starts. We've got the two siblings over there, although separated from distance. And then Tess really wants to go with the director of the rehabilitation centre to a peace talk. Who's going to be at this peace talk and so, where is it going to take Okay, place? so this is a, a, a peace talk, one among many. There have been failed peace talks before. Uh, there's a little hope with this one. And so there is a, 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 a variety of delegates who go. Mostly, in fact, they are all men except for, for Tessa. In some peace talks I did discover that, that, that women had gone uh, but in this particular one, it's the director of the rehabilitation centre. There are sort of 
international presence there, representatives from the International Crisis Group who are there to observe. Then there's a, a Sudanese me- mediator and there are elders from other tribes. There's a kind of a collective and it's almost as they go, they pick up the different delegates on the way because this peace talk is actually going to happen at a very remote camp mm. uh, I- across the border in, in Congo. Yes. yes. Colonel Colo. Colonel Colo. Yeah. He's there too and you know he's he's dressed up all, in all his colonel gear and everything and very proudly says I have more than one wife. This year I have three wives and many strong children. You see my wife here Mildred who was abducted as I too was abducted and we will create a new generation together. Oh. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> He also questions why Tess is there. You know, he, he, he why come tying knots in the devil's tail? You insist you will help, but instead you do more harm. If God meant us to be at peace, we would be at peace. And this is kind of like the whole thing. You know, they come to a peace talk, but do they really want peace? This is exactly right. Everybody, as Dominic, another character, well, Dominic is actually the director of the uh, rehabilitation, says, in the beginning to Tess, everyone has an agenda, and, and they do. And part of looking at the international representatives, we almost sort of touch on things like neocolonialism and what, you know, what value is it, being there, how ha, can peace be afforded, and at what cost to whom? And what happens when there is peace? You yes, know, there's sort of so much. Will forgiveness just happen? You know, you do. You write about a beautiful uh, custom, the Mato Opet. Yes, custom, and it, there is a custom, but there's also a custom to refuse to acknowledge forgiveness. That's exactly right. So it's that idea of um, can you forgive somebody for repre- you know reprehensible acts, um, or can you just reconcile and try and move on? What is it like when when people who have been on the side of the rebels come back into a village? Can they be integrated? Mm. Is there forgiveness? Or can we just say, well, let's just build a new life together and get on with things? Sarah's really got together with some beautiful African myths and uh, abilities to talk and conjure up the sin, the, the spirits. And also with quotes, this is another quote, forgiveness is not without limits, but as we like to say here, hope is a vulture. It can pick away the bitterness. Mm, good one. So why call it the wolf hour? Well, the wolf hour to me has always really intrigued me. It's that time somewhere in the middle of the night when you when you wake up with your most troubling thoughts, when the things that really unnerve you present themselves, the problems that are perhaps unfixable. Um, it's also that time when you come face to face with yourself and maybe you're surprised by your bravery, maybe you're upset or, or shocked by how poorly you handle a situation. There's also a, um, a lovely idea associated with it too, that it's a time when people, most people, either die or are born. And so I, I, yeah. I like This that all fits concept. in beautifully because Tess and Stephen have parents. And where are the parents? Well, the parents are in Melbourne. And even though they're parents of adult children, they're still incredibly invested in them and feel that there's a need to guide them and support them um, and yet they find it hard to reconcile some of their decisions. I think with every parent, it's that knock on the door by the mm. police. For this parent, with these sets of parents, it's 
the call on the phone. Your daughter has been abducted. Look, morals. Morals come in for just the parents. They feel blame against each other. They're angry. the, The whole thing's there. But we link this to Dante's Divine Comedy. And the seventh cycle is the cycle for for murderers. Murderers. And another quote from Sarah Miles' book. Murder is not the same as other crimes. If you steal, you can give it back. If you're raped, the rapist can ask for forgiveness. Neither is possible with murder. Ooh, so it's it's just this this story, the Wolf Hour. It's a moral story on so many things. And who has the answers? <laughs> Big question. <laughs> I know it is. It is phenomenal. So it's just you know you you come to think how would you cope? You know how as parents you know trying to protect your children, how siblings you know trying to protect each other, or should you even be in that position in the first place? Oh, a gripping moral thriller set in Africa about a rather young, naive aid worker and a very much more skillful brother. But who's the most moral? Oh, so it's Sarah Miles, The Wolf Hour by Alan and Unwin. Thank Thanks, you. Jen. Well done, Jen. Um, Jen, have you heard of the Nibelungs? The Nibelungs? Nibelungs. You would have. Oh, no. Wagner, the Nibelungs, Brunhild, oh, Siegfried. Yes. Okay. Okay. It's all part of the uh, Teutonic mythology. And my guest today, Katja de Becerra, artfully alludes to this world in her adolescent novel, What the Woods Keep. So, Katja, mm-hmm. welcome to 3CR. Um, hi, thanks for having me, David. Now, the <laughs> Nibelungs, we're not as familiar with the Nibelungs uh, tradition. What was the attraction of it? How did you get involved mm-hmm. in it? What is it? <laughs> well, um, when I was little, I grew up in Russia, and we had lots of books in the house. And um, I think a lot of ideas that we have um, as grown-ups, um, and as we, as if we write, we where, where do ideas come from? And I guess a lot of it comes from our formative years. <laughs> and um, I remember reading this book. It was mythology, you know, international myths and legends. And one of them just stuck in my mind and stayed with me for 20 years. And it was the legend of, uh, you know, Siegfried and the dragon. And uh, I remember the imagery of it. And that was fascinating. And the Brunhild as well. So, and when I was writing this book, my debut novel, um, so the idea was to see how fantasy and reality clashes. And that's, well, you've got this mm. fantasy world, yeah. uh, which is associated with the Nibelungs and, and this whole mm. army, basically, of, of um, or a force that's uh, out there. But then, yes, you do that mm. thing with um, clashing with reality, because before we get to the actual story, we have the mythological world linked to more academic thought, if I can say so, because many of the chapters start with mm. some sort of scientific background. Here's an example. Uncanny is used to denote a type of emotional and cognitive dissonance one feels when encountering something that's familiar but also scary and mysterious. Something that looks right but feels wrong. In psychology the concept of the uncanny was primarily shaped by Jentz and Freud. The latter drew heavily on linguistics. In German uncanny, unheimlich, denotes the unfamiliar, the awareness of non-belonging that makes all your senses go haywire. 
Under the sway of the uncanny, you're discombobulated, not quite at ease, not quite at home. (laughs) And so you've brought this sort of fantasy mythological world into the real world. Yeah, and that's that's what fascinates me as well. This is the kind of stuff that I wanted to read, but I wasn't finding enough books that dealt with that. So I wanted, I decided to write one. Um, I, I love fantasy, and I love, and I'm an anthropologist by training, so I'm an actually I'm an academic. So a lot of this comes from my own, I guess, um, dilemma in my head. So how do you how do you reconcile? the two things, you know, the idea of fantasy, of supernatural, and the real world, and when they clash. But what does that do to the reader, and Mm. to this whole notion of the Mm. fantasy, which is so easy to dismiss? Mm. What does it do for the reader? Well, in the ideal world, I wanted the reader to consider different approaches to that. So what if something happens that doesn't fit our idea of what's possible, right? And there are different approaches to that. So the main character, Hayden, she's this wannabe skeptic. So she wants to use science. She can explain, she can explain everything with science. Um, she thinks she has a really great idea of the world. And then she is met with something that she maybe can't explain and she, her brain starts spiraling. So, so that's where a lot of your, her ideas come in. And she talks about science and concepts and logic and you know, but it also <laughs> makes the possibility of the fantasy world all the more real. So it's it's not as easy to mm. dismiss, which is is fascinating. Mm. This intertwining of the fantasy and the reality, a, a plausibility mm. to that uncanny and the unknown. Now, getting into the story, it's classically set up. You've got Hayden, as you've already mentioned. Uh, and a variety of intriguing possibilities and problems that she's got. She comes into an inheritance which drives the storyline. What's the inheritance that she comes into? Uh, well, she, her mother has disappeared a long time ago and Hayden kind of came to terms with that and that's in the past. And then the moment she thinks it's all in the past, it all comes back. So she gets the inheritance and it's the house, the house that she grew up in. And it's a, a rather strange <laughs> house. Uh, but then you've already mentioned one of the other factors. She lost mm. her mother, which mm. is something that she's trying to reconcile. Because her mother disappeared under unusual circumstances. Yes, and that sort of comes back to haunt Hayden over and over again over the years. So, yes, 10 years ago, she lived in this house. She was a little girl and in a small town. And her mom just one day walked into the woods and never came back. And that's, hence the title, hence the Into title, the Woods. What the woods skip. <laughs> but also then it, it becomes more complex. Now, her father mm. uh, had an academic career, but he's now... A disgraced academic. What's going on there? I just keep writing this academic parents. I just can't help myself. <laughs> I grew up surrounded by scientists. Ah. And, and Hayden's father is in no way like my dad, who is a mathematician and not disgraced. Mm. <laughs> so, and my aunt is a physicist and another aunt is also a mathematician. So I kind of grew up in that environment. So it's a miracle I didn't turn up, turn up a scientist. But anyway, um, but in, in Hayden's story, so her parents are like opposites, really, because her mom is this, you know, I guess Hayden remembers her mom through this prism of her childhood. So she's this, you know, almost angelic-like being that is so, you know, full of light and just, you know, 
walks around bare feet and, and tells strange stories and you know, kind of spiritual in a way. But her dad is this, you know, scientist, a physicist. He's very well known. And then he loses it all because he becomes obsessed with this, you know, pseudoscience, basically. This well, he becomes conspiracy. obsessed with the Nibelungs. He becomes obsessed with the Nibelungs because he has a theory of what happened to his wife. Um, and Hayden just can't come to terms with it. It's ridiculous to her. That's betrayal of science. And he keeps <laughs> claiming that yeah. this research is done to protect Hayden. Exactly. And that's kind of, a, you know, these are tropes. You know, there's a tropes from fantasy, from urban fantasy. And I wanted to play with those tropes. Yeah, you know? well, they, they are. They're, they're classical <laughs> traditions. You know, someone's yeah. searching for their identity. But we can mm-hmm. keep adding to that because Hayden's got no love life. <laughs> She's just too into science. No, I think it's just she's just too um, in in her own world, I guess. And um, I guess you know when I I, I I draw back on myself as well when I was that age, you know, and I was she's kind of like me on steroids, I guess. <laughs> back when I was a teenager. But it's it's that whole notion of finding yourself because there is a love interest, and you explore that thread as well. And just to add to the complexity, she has a very troubled past. Uh, yes, Hayden. Yes, Hayden. yes. So these are things, you know, it's um, sort of things that she tries to put behind her and she can't because that's part of her. Well, there's certain inexplicable things that have occurred and there was a, um, a suggested act of violence um, and she was expelled from school because of it. And it's only through reading the novel that we start to see uh, how this might have occurred, that it's not just the traditional uh, notion of somebody just being violent for the sake of it. There are certain extenuating circumstances behind it. So we have all of these threads, and of course there's an explanation. We are attracted to mysteries. Our perpetual drive to solve the unsolvable, to know the unknown, makes us human. The unknowing bothers us. To transform the unknowing into knowing, our brain turns to pattern-seeking And in many ways, that's what the reader ends up having to do to try and make sense of all of these patterns. Um, Now, let's keep adding to this complexity the layers of relationships, this uh, search for identity that Hayden has, um, because there's an array of relationships of sorts, a relationship with her unknown mother, her estranged father, her roommate, Del, and then, of course, the love interest, Shannon. But these, each in their own way, have a different sort of nuance to them. So um, Hayden and Del? Yeah, I loved writing Del, and people seem to like her a lot. And sometimes she takes away the spotlight from Hayden, I find, (laughs) in comments that I get from readers. But I wanted, first of all, I wanted to write a really, really strong, really powerful female friendship. In this book, that's that was very important to me um, because I I find that I want to read books that feature that that women you know support women and and girls are really good and to each Del other. And is yeah. Hayden's roommate. She's her roommate. She's her friend. You know, she's the first friend, like serious friend that Hayden found, really. But they're opposites. And they're very opposite. Yeah, they're very different people. And I think um, I read in some um, reader impression review that Hayden is like light to Hayden's darkness. Ah. So yeah, father daughter relationship. 
that's another one. Um, I guess a lot of expectation of what you think an ideal parent is, and then he's not behaving that way, and he's hiding things from her, but it's for your own protection, which is extremely frustrating, I think, as a, as a trope, and I, I find it drives me, you know, really angry. But I'm not going to tell you what I'm protecting <laughs> no, you from. No, it's better for you not to know. Yes. So, but of course, you know, it's, it's, of course it's going to drive her to investigate on her own. But the unknown mother is an interesting one mm. as well. And and because it's for girls especially part of their identity, it is. Yeah, I wanted to have that relationship on page, even though the mother doesn't have, yet she doesn't appear on page. Well, I'm, well, she has a presence. She has a presence, but she's not physically, you know, present. Um, well, not gonna give away any spoilers, but you know, but, yeah. she's not in the book really. But she's in Hayden's mind, and there are constant, you know, ref, ref, references to her and memories and flashbacks, and maybe suggestion of her actually observing. So she's like this invisible, you know, presence that's constantly. constantly and it helps there. explain some of the. Uh, extraordinary circumstances that occur in the course of the novel. Shannon, of course, Mm. the boyfriend come, (laughs) yes, he is, no, he isn't. (laughs) That's kind of a blast from the past. That's another one of my favourite tropes, I guess, something that's, you know, like a long-lost friend or something, and then they come back and they're a different person. Well, they they grew up in the same town. Yeah. They've been separated then, and then they reunite, but they've got an interesting connection, which we can't necessarily Mm. give away. But uh, that becomes an interesting relationship. Added to this, we have, well, Hayden's sense of self because strange things start occurring around her. A brown pigeon smashes right into the glass and slides down, leaving a bloody trail in its wake. And then you also have uh, Hayden in an aquarium um, and what we see, a large seal torpedoing in my direction, going full speed. It hits the glass, the water in the tank turns pink. So we've got some rather frightening, extraordinary things happening around uh, Hayden. This is again uh, where supernatural and then the fantasy leaks into the world, right? So... I guess my interest in writing this book was so what happens when the two clash and one licks into another and you know we'll talk about these different you know dimensions maybe rubbing against each other and there are holes and you know what happens then so the animals lose control and it's like complete just chaos animals right? and people lose animals, control but there yes. is a reason for that which yeah. is associated with the Nibelungs exactly yeah it all goes back to that <laughs> And so it's it's almost a return to the township of her past, uh, and all of the threads then start coming together and making sense. But lastly, your narrative style. You've done some interesting things here, because it's not just the narrative of the story. You've also threaded through this reports, notes, because her mother has left some notes with the inheritance that she's got to pursue. Uh, There are letters uh, and journal entries that go through this book as well. Mm. How does that add to the storytelling? I find that um, my favourite sort of go-to narration is the first point, you know, narration from one character. So Hayden is the narrator, so it's her story, and I find that it's urgent, and it gives you insight into her mind and her thinking, what, what, what she goes through. But it doesn't sometimes, sometimes there are gaps in the story of what we know. And documents, I brought that in, so they're called, you know, paratexts. They're like um, extra layers, 
and uh, we kind of add thickness to the story. Well, it fleshes out some of the, mm. the things that we are less certain about. So there is Hayden's past, and uh, she was expelled from school. We think violence, etc. Mm. But then when you start reading some of these reports, there are extenuating circumstances that only come out in these reports. So we have quite a multi-dimensional, multi-layered story here with the mythology, with scientific reality, as you say, with the tropes that are normally associated with adolescent fiction, a girl searching for her identity. The book is actually uh, called What the Woods Keep, which is associated with the Nibelungs. The author, Katja de Becerra, and it is um, from, where's the, Alan and Unwin. There it is, Alan and Unwin. Katja, well, thank you. And Alan and Unwin, half hour again. <laughs> and Alan and Unwin. Because I, you, of David. course, was talking with Sarah Miles about her book, The Wolf Hour. But um, would you like to become a financially successful author? This weekend, there's a writer's symposium on at... Uh, South Bank, and it's called Breaking the Code. It's suitable for writers at all levels, published, self-published, or anyone who is thinking, one day I'll write a book. And it covers quite a few interesting things like pitching, digital marketing and social media, and building an online presence. If you want to know any more about it, it sort of sounds not too bad at quite a reasonable price too. 30 speakers, six countries, Breaking the code. That's and if you end up writing, you could end up coming in here to be interviewed. Absolutely, with us on published or not. There we go. See you next week. See you next week.